All right. Um, the beautiful thing about us is um, we like to have fun, um, but we also do take the Bible seriously and uh, we take Jesus seriously. Um, but we also um, we love to meet and see new faces. And so if you're new here tonight, welcome. I'm glad you're here. My name is David Barnes. Um, I am the RUF campus minister here. Um, and I know I say this often and I just I think I'm going to make it a thing, which is there's a lot of different places you can be tonight. Um, and I really feel honored uh, that you chose to be here, um, to be honest with you. I know that in college, you often have a lot of things pulling you in a lot of different directions. And so I'm honored uh, that each one of you are here. And it's not by mistake. You're here um, uh, by, on purpose. And so I'm just really thankful for that. Um, so if you would, uh, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. Um, and we are going to be uh, kind of working through. So if you've been here, we've been looking at the seven I am statements and the seven I am statements of Jesus are all in the book of John. And so Jesus makes these statements about who he is, right? I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door, the gate. Um, I'm the resurrection and the life. And we walk through those. And now we kind of last week we backed up and we went to the very beginning where it says that um, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we talked about how the word connects to Jesus in, in verse 14. It says the word became flesh and that word uh, dwelt among us. And we talked about how that word is tabernacled, right? And that's very important with the Old Testament imagery where Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, he tabernacled with the Israelites quite literally in a movable tent, so to speak. And then and then that finally makes the connection. It says for uh, for from his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's a pretty bold statement. And so we're just going to continue that. And so tonight we're going to look at John the Baptist's testimony. Okay, we're going to look at John the Baptist's testimony. And so I'm going to read uh, verses uh, 29 through 34 in chapter 1. But before I do... Uh, please allow me to pray for the reading of God's word. Uh, dear most gracious heavenly father, uh, we do give you thanks for this night. Thank you for the goofiness. Thank you for the season. Um, thank you for the cool weather, the brisk air, but also the sunshine. Uh, father, thank you for the gifts of life and breath. And uh, thank you for the opportunity for us to meet here and to meet you here. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way and these students would, um, would see you uh, beautifully in your word, Lord. It is alive, it is living, it is active. Um, and Lord, I pray uh, to lean on your promise that your word never goes out and returns empty. Uh, Lord, would you uh, bless this time? Um, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Um, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start in verse 29 of chapter 1 and just go through 34. This is kind of a sermon at, so Lord willing, it will be shorter. <laughs> but I am a Presbyterian pastor, so I usually go long. Um, okay, so starting in verse 29, this is the, uh, the word of, of Yahweh to, to his people. The next, day, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who, who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. 
I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, quote, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let us pray. Uh, Father, again, we do uh, pray that you'd be with us in this time. Uh, I pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. In 1993, uh, the best movie in the world came out. Okay. Um, it's called The Sandlot. Um, and it is uh, one of my favorite movies. It's a, if you don't know, it's about it's kind of this, uh, this fifth grader named Scotty Smalls. Uh, who moves to a suburb in, outside of L.A., um, and he's looking to make friends, and so he goes out and he meets these kids, uh, and they play baseball, but he's super embarrassed, right, because he's, he's reserved, he's quiet, he doesn't really know how to play baseball, and so before his dad goes out of town, he's trying to play catch with him, dinks him right in the eye, gives him a black eye, he doesn't know how to catch, doesn't know how to throw, and so he befriends a guy named Benny, and Benny is like the best player on the team, and Benny just says, hey, man, just stick with me. I got you. We'll figure this out together. And Benny uh, hits, hits a ball straight to his glove. And they're like, okay, okay, guy, you can stay, okay? Smalls, you're, you're fine for now. But in one of my favorite scenes, though, Benny, again, the best player, he gets up and he hits that ball so hard that it quite literally ripped the ball out of its seams um, and the cover fell off. And so Smalls, uh, has to now go to his house because they don't have a ball. That was their last ball. And it went over into the beast's yard, right? This huge dog. Um, and they're like, oh, what do we do? And so Small was like, Smalls was like, oh, I'll save the day. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get this baseball and I'm going to bring it and we'll continue to play. And so Smalls, he goes home, he grabs this baseball. It's kind of in this trophy room and he takes it back um, and they start to play with it. And, and then Smalls comes up, so he throws it to him, and then he comes up, and Smalls, right, he hits a home run. The first time he hit it, hits a home run over the fence, and then he proceeds to tell these kids that the ball, he needs to get it back because it was his dad's ball, and it was, it was, it was signed by, by somebody named Babe Ruth. And the scene goes something like this. He goes, Smalls, you're telling me you went home and you got a ball signed by Babe Ruth, and you actually played with it? And Smalls responded by saying like, well, yeah, I planned on taking the ball back. It's not a big deal. He goes, and then another kid exclaimed, it was signed by Babe Ruth. Small goes, okay, okay, you guys keep saying this, but, but who is she? <laughs> Everybody goes, what? Are you kidding me, Smalls? What are you talking about? He's the Sultan of SWAT. He's the King of Crash. He's the Colossus of Clout. It's Babe Ruth. The great Bambino, uh, said by our favorite character, Ham. <laughs> and, they began to, and they began to explain to him that Babe Ruth was one of the greatest baseball players to ever st step foot onto the diamond. Well, in a similar way in our passage, John is testifying about who Jesus is. And people don't recognize him much as such. And, and so much like Smalls, we also fail to recognize who the most important person in history is. And so John, much like the boys, he tells us, who is he? And it's kind of John's telling us, I'm telling you, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the great Bambino. How do you miss this, Smalls? So maybe for some of us, uh, we have a similar heart of that of the disciples. 
in that we have no idea who Jesus really is yet. Maybe we've grown up in a family where you've attended church, maybe a little bit, um, kind of a creaster type of family, which is Christmas and Easter, plus or minus. Maybe you grew up in the church more consistently. Maybe you have none, uh, no experience in the church. But some of us, maybe you've, again, you've experienced some services. You've heard about Jesus. Um, you've gone to Sunday schools. You've heard about Jesus. You know, you've heard the classic Sunday school stories about Noah and the ark and different things like that. Um, and so, again, you've heard a lot of things about Jesus, but you don't really have a personal relationship with him as your Lord and your Savior. And I know all, a lot we talk about Jesus as Lord and Savior, but there's two things being proclaimed there. Jesus as Lord is the authority over your life. As the one who gives it, he has authority over it. The one in whom you were created, he has authority over your life. And so he is your Lord because he has authority but he's also your savior because he is the one who entered into time and space to provide uh, the sacrificial death, which we'll talk about, the sacrificial death for your sins. So he's the authority, but he's also the savior. He's both of those things. Maybe for others of us, we have a similar heart to that of the Pharisees, right? We're skeptical. We're blinded by our own self-righteousness. We are self-assured in our own reason and our own ability to see what truth really is for us. We are often apathetic to God's authority or his rule or his will because we have it all figured out. We have developed our own belief system that fits better with our lifestyle anyways, and this makes us feel better about the things that we're doing because we are really our own authority. And so Jesus says, Lord, eh, I'll take him as the good moral teacher, and I'll take what is good, and I will... Um, get rid of what I don't like. No matter where you are this evening, John bears witness to who Jesus is. And this goes into the theme that we've been looking at ever since the beginning is who is Jesus? And at first we looked at who does Jesus say that he is? I think that's a proper place to start. And now we're looking at some of the witnesses and the testimonies of who Jesus is in order to help us see and know, not only to see and hear, but to see and know who Jesus really is. And this is what John says at the beginning of his gospel. He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you would have life in his name. How does he do that? He does it through testimony. How do we do that, right? One of the first things that I did whenever I got to Mizzou as the new campus minister is the first large group, I shared my testimony of God's grace. It's really not that far off for the Bible to be written as eyewitness testimony. Because eyewitness testimonies and testimonies being, being dropped down, like people remember testimony and story really well. And in fact, whenever we evangelize or whenever we go to our friends, the best way to share Jesus is to share what he's done in your life, right? To build relationship with somebody and share like the traumas, the, the abuse, the sadness, the, uh, the hurt that is in our stories and say like, I, I quite literally could not be walking right now if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus in my life. And that's true for me. And I, I think it's true for some of you. Um, so, so John does that through telling his testimony. So tonight, let's look at, at John's testimony in three quick scenes. Scene one um, is John's proclamation. Um, scene two is John's evidence that he provides. And scene three is John's conclusion. So if you would, if you have your Bible open, um, I love whenever you guys see that I'm, I'm getting this from the Word of God. I'm not making this stuff up. Um, 
And so, yeah, if you would put your eyes on scripture because it's, it's beautiful to see. So scene one, again, it's really but the broad point is like we're looking at John's testimony. Well, let's look at his proclamation. Look at verses uh, 29 and 30. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What does John mean whenever he exclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? And there are actually a few different camps. You, like for some of you who grew up in a Christian home, you may be like, oh, I know exactly where this is going. But there's actually a few different camps about what he could be talking about. John may be referring to the Lamb of Isaiah 53 verse 7. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, he's what's called a major prophet in the Old Testament. He proclaims this. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its uh, shears is silent. He did not open his mouth. Okay. Number two. John may be referring to the lamb of Genesis 22, verse 8, where it says that God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Um, if you don't know the story in Genesis 22 in the Old Testament, God calls a man named Abraham to take his son up on a mountain and to sacrifice him. And it was a test of his faith. And so Abraham took his son up there and um, he promised his son that the Lord would provide a lamb or a ram for, uh, for them whenever they got up there to sacrifice. Because he's, he's like, well, where's the sacrifice? And so he brings his son Isaac up on this mountain. And right as he had the knife up here, Yahweh said, stop. You have now proven that you fear me. Right? And then, uh, and then a lamb appears or a ram appears in a thicket. And that right there becomes the substitute. God provided to Abraham a substitute to preserve his son Isaac. So is he talking about that lamb that he provides as a substitute? And then the third one is John may be referring to what's called the Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, um, in the book of Exodus, as the people were enslaved to the Egyptians, um, as they were uh, beginning to come out and they were, beca- and they were beginning uh, to become his people, and there were these 10 plagues. Maybe you've heard this in the Sunday school. There's these 10 huge plagues. The last one was the death of a firstborn. So judgment came upon all of Egypt, even God's people, but he provided a way of salvation or deliverance. And how did he do that? He said, take a lamb, cut, cut it, right? And allow its blood to be on the posts of the door. And whenever the angel of death passes over, right? That's why it's called Passover. He'll see the blood and you'll be protected. So he provides a substitute, but judgment came, right? Judgment comes, but he provides a substitute through the lamb's blood. Again, it's okay if you don't have a lot of Old Testament knowledge. The point that I'm making is, is, is clear with what John is saying as well, that all lamb sacrifices were for deliverance and forgiveness of sin. And you may ask why? Well, the, like he called it the life blood. The blood of a lamb was, was a symbol for life. So in the Old Testament, it was always a life for a life because we are sinful people in the eyes of God. Okay, we are sinful people, and so we need a sacrifice, or we need atonement. We need forgiveness. That blood, that lifeblood, covered us. That's what atonement means. It covered us. Okay, 
And so uh, let me help you with a, with a modern image of this. Think about a ransom, right? Today, uh, today, if you think about a ransom, I think about the old, like the, the kind of the typical scene where some rich family, right? Some kid like goes to school or something and uh, these kidnappers come and they kidnap this kid and they abduct him. And then it's usually like wealthy people and then they call them and then they say, hey, if you want to get your son back, you have to pay this ransom and then you'll get your child back. It's kind of like that in a similar way. We, because of our sin, uh, we're in disobedience of God and it separates us from him. And then God provides a ransom through the blood of an animal so that we can be invited back into his presence, right? It covers our sin. But that was always only temporary. Let me give you three quick uh, texts that kind of teach the same thing. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So do you hear it? He delivered us from darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, where we have that big word redemption, and then there's a comma, explains it, redemption is the forgiveness of sin. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 2, it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering or a sacrifice to God. And then lastly, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Whenever the high priest in the Old Testament would go and they would, again, cut the, cut the neck of the lamb and the blood would be poured out, they would have to do that every single year. And the priest could never sit because the work was never done. The Old Testament was always just a shadow of what was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why you actually see John saying, Behold, it is the Lamb of God. It is the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the world. And this high priest sat down in the holy place. And it's not the holy place that was on earth. It's the holy place in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And that shows that his work was complete. That what he did mattered. That what he did completed salvation. What he did completed deliverance. What he did brought forgiveness. So the key takeaway is this. That Jesus is the gift provided by God to take away sin. Jesus is the gift provided by God to take away sin. One author put it this way. He said, as a lamb, he becomes a sacrificial animal whose death carries away a condition that prohibited us to be in the presence of God. And he kind of, he's picking up on some Old Testament language one more time. And this is important because Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's also what's called a scapegoat where the sins of people would be laid on the head of the scapegoat and then it would be rushed out and it would carry away the sins of the people. That's where he's picking up on that. So after John's proclamation, he provides evidence. That's his proclamation. Now he provides evidence. Um, and part of how he provides evidence too is in a verse, right after verse 20, uh, 29, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What does that mean? Well, if you know the story, okay, Jesus and John are cousins. And John was born first. So technically he would be on the earth first. And so he must be talking about something different because he said, after me comes one who ranks before me. So he's talking again, and this is inevitable, like you cannot miss this. He's making a declaration about Jesus' identity as divine. Because how do you rank before somebody if it's not physical? He's got to be talking about spiritual or eternal, right? And so John is saying he ranks before me. Why? Because he was always before me. 
He was before the foundation of the world. He was the word that was in the beginning. John is recognizing he's bearing witness about the identity of Jesus. So it's, it's worth looking at that. And then in verses 32 and 33, it says, And John bore witness, right? This is his, his eyewitness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. First, it's worth noting that John is talking about this scene at Jesus' baptism. But in the book of John, right, we have four eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he's talking about this scene where Jesus is being baptized. And by the way, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. But in another gospel account, there's a voice from heaven who says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he is quite literally baptized by John. And then John picks up on the last part. So John doesn't mention the voice from heaven or the actual baptism. John's testimony is specifically focusing on the spirit that is on Christ. And that's important. But why is it important? Why might he focus on that? Why is he focusing on the spirit? One author helpfully stated it this way. The Old Testament expected the messianic era. All that means is the time whenever the Messiah would come to be a day of renewal when the Spirit would not only transform Israel, but it would rest mightily upon the Messiah himself. Often in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon leaders, come upon kings and judges and prophets, but it only remained until the God-given task was, was over. Therefore, whenever John stated that the Spirit remained on Jesus, he is boldly providing evidence through an eyewitness testimony that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that the Messiah would be full of the Spirit at all times, that the Spirit would finally rest upon this one person, this anointed person. Again, the word Messiah means the anointed one. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about this future anointed one or this future Messiah. This was hundreds of years before Jesus. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, given this imagery of a tree. So a stump of Jesse is his forefather, and the shoot coming out of it would be a son or a seed. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. That was hundreds of years earlier. The Spirit did not merely descend upon Jesus, but it remained. We cannot miss that word, that it remained upon him, which is a sign pointing to Jesus' Jesus's divine anointing, right? Messiah, anointed one, Spirit remained on him. He is the divine anointed one, meaning that John is very boldly declaring that Jesus is God himself, the second person of the Trinity with an eternal relation of sonship to God the Father. That is what he is saying whenever he is saying that the Spirit remained upon him. He is saying that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah in this messianic era where the Spirit would remain and dwell upon him. In fact, it's interesting that John follows up this comment uh, with verse 33. And he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Again, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? John is trying to communicate that he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until he saw the sign. He goes, why would he? It's his cousin. Jesus is his cousin. And he's like, and he, by the way, he repeats it twice, twice in verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him. And then in verse 33, he says, I myself did not know him. 
Why is he saying this about his cousin? This is really weird, right? I myself did not know him, but then what he is saying is he didn't know him be as the Messiah until he saw the sign. And John, as a prophet coming into the New Testament and, and, and quite literally leading the way, he's the voice. He's the voice in the wilderness that, that Isaiah talks about that will prepare the way for the Messiah. And in this moment, John the Baptist is saying, I, I did not know until I saw the sign of the Spirit remaining on him that he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the divine anointed one from the Father to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. This is further evidence, according to John, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the anointed one because not only did the Spirit of God remain upon him, but now this Jesus has the power and authority to now be the one who baptizes in the power of the Holy Spirit. John came with a water baptism. So John, as a prophet, came with a water baptism that said, repent from your sins for judgment is coming, right? And now Jesus is coming in and he's preparing the way and he is also preaching the same gospel, but he's giving us the Holy Spirit to enable us to repent for the coming judgment. Therefore, John is proclaiming and providing evidence through his eyewitness testimony that the, mess- the Messianic era, this time that all the prophets, all the Old Testament was talking about, it has pierced into history right now in the person of Jesus Christ. The Messianic era has dawned. And this is confirmed by the simple fact that the Holy Spirit remained upon Jesus and it stayed with him. It was the divine anointing. And quickly, uh, John's conclusion, it's very simple, right? Verse 34, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Some ancient manuscripts actually replace Son of God with this uh, uh, let me reread the whole sentence. It says, And I have seen and bore witness that this is the chosen of God. In light of chosen of God, it seems likely that he's connecting it again with the major prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, verse 1, where it says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who is that talking about? Israel failed. So you have to read it in context to be a good reader. And some would say that's talking about Israel as a nation. Israel failed. And these are also called the servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah, where it talks about this servant, sometimes in the plural, sometimes in the singular. But here it says, this is my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This servant is God's chosen one in whom John is now bearing witness that this Jesus is God's only begotten son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so, why does this matter? Why does this matter? If this is true, how does it change who we are? Does it change who we are? I hope so, because if you don't hear anything else, the whole point of bringing in the Old Testament is to show you that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. Jesus is the anointed one and whom has the divine anointing of the Holy Spirit resting and remaining upon him. It gives him the power to baptize in in the Holy Spirit because the law was never meant to perfect. It was only meant to reveal sin. 
It was always just a shadow of what was to come. I'm going to say it again. The law was never meant to perfect. It couldn't. It was a shadow of pointing to what was to come. What was to come as, as a Messiah, it was, it was God in the flesh who not only lived the life that we can't, but died the death that we deserve, was raised from the dead, vindicated, and ascended to the right hand of the God, the Father Almighty, which is the holies of holies, by the way. And he sat down and his work was complete. And now... The New Testament tells us that his Holy Spirit was sent to us to proclaim the gospel to our hearts. That because Jesus came and he died, we receive forgiveness. Do you guys need forgiveness? I know, I know whenever I was literally in your spot in college as an alcoholic and a drug addict in recovery, I, I felt a lot of shame and burden about my past sins, Right? That's a normal thing to feel that way. Jesus comes and he says, I will provide you rest for your soul. I will provide forgiveness. I will give you rest from your weary soul, the heavy burdens that you feel because of life, the sins that, the, the evilness that, that continues not only to be done to you, but the evil that we do unto others. All of us will raise our hands. We've all hurt other people. We're all guilty of that. The first step is just being honest that we're guilty before a holy God. That's, that is not necessarily bad news because the whole story is that he recognized that and he took on flesh and he entered in to take care of that issue. And not only that, but he has the power to, to baptize with the power of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit indwells believers so that it's not about works righteousness. You don't earn your way into heaven. It is a gift given to you by grace. The Bible speaks about this very clearly. For you have been saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God. If you repent, and what I mean by that is if you're walking this way of selfish desires and living for myself and living for money and living for sexual pleasure or living for all of these things, if you're walking this way, repent just means turn this way and look to Jesus because in him you receive forgiveness. Everything that you thought was freedom is actually slavery. This was true for the Israelites too, right? They went out into the wilderness like, we should go back. <laughs> slavery actually wasn't that bad. At least we had meat, right? Jesus provides forgiveness, true, deep forgiveness for your soul. That's good news. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Um, thank you for John the Baptist's uh, testimony and his witness uh, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, and thank you for preserving your word throughout the millennia uh, so that we may read the very words of Scripture and know who you are um, and be revealed um, your character and your heart and your love for us because we see that in your son, Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who has been slain on the altar of the earth so that we may believe and trust in him and have life in his name. That's all of John's purpose, is that we may have life in his name. Father, would we come to you and eat and drink for free as you offer. Uh, Lord, allow the Spirit to lead us and guide us to these living waters. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. All right. Music team, if you'd come up.